Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. If you didn't bring them, that's all right. I'll read the passage for us as we go. And again, this morning's looked a little different. I hope that you have enjoyed the songs that we've sung. If your favorite hasn't been sung yet, don't worry. You'll have an opportunity to suggest or recommend another one in just a bit. Um, Once again, thank the kids for being in here. Two days in a row in church is a lot. I meant that one for the adults. Kids, you guys are doing a great job. Um, Also want to remind you that the kids are welcome here. The little noises, the little questions, and kids, if I ask questions today and you think you know the answer, it is okay to answer those questions, all right? So I might even wait for you to give me an answer sometimes, and that's okay. I want you to think through these things. I want you to be involved in this. I want you to understand what's going on um, because what we're doing here today matters. And really... What I want to think through today is the why we're here in the first place. How do you respond to the greatest gift ever given? I'm going to assume, and it's a big assumption, but I'm going to assume for a moment uh, that because we are here, because we're in this place, because this has somehow made a priority in your life today, which, again, I'm truly thankful for that you're here. But because this is a priority, I'm going to assume that most of us understand that Christmas is about more than what the culture says it's about. Uh, that it's about more than presence, more than general cheer, that it is about more even than gathering together with family and friends and loved ones, although those are all good things. We know that it's about Christ. We know that he is at the center of all that we do, uh, not just the Christ candle, but the person and the work of Jesus Christ is at the center of all that we do. Uh, that God gave the greatest gift. Uh, he gave us life. He gave us breath. He made all things. But without Christ... Life is temporary, and then we anticipate eternity without God, separated from him. But because of what Christ has done, the gift of salvation, we have a reason not only to gather today, but to gather every Sunday and to respond in a particular way every day of our life. But how do you respond to the greatest gift ever given? Kids, how many of you have already opened some gifts this morning? Anybody get anything? Dave Whitaker was very excited. So how did you respond? When you got a gift, how did you respond? Anybody? You were excited? You were happy? You smiled? What'd you say? Thank you? Not like just where's the next one? No. You stopped and you took a moment to respond to the gift. So here's the question for you. As we come together today, and really as we gather together any given Sunday, or even more than that, as you and I open our eyes every day of our lives, how do we respond to this gift? We know how very important it is. We know that it matters through eternity, but how do we respond to the greatest gift ever given? And I would uh, submit that we could probably wrap it up in one word, and that's worship. How do people respond when they recognize who God is and what he has done? And the answer is worship. When people come face to face with the glory of God, they worship. When those shepherds in the field see what the angels were talking about, they worship. When the wise men come and encounter the Christ child, they worship. And as we're going to see from Luke 1, when Mary uh, hears from Elizabeth that when she said hello, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy because even in the womb, John the Baptist recognized who it was that Mary was carrying. Mary worshipped. And so today I want us to think about why we worship. We're not there already. Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to start reading in verse 46, and we're going to read through verse 55. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, this is what God's Word says. 
Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together today, I pray that we would worship you. I pray that we would see worship as more than the songs that we sing, although it certainly is a part of the songs that we sing. I pray that our worship is more than what we define as gathering with the body of believers for an hour or two every Sunday, although, again, that is certainly part of our worship. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who seek to worship you with everything that we do. I pray that we're a people that take every thought captive in worship. I pray that we're a people that love others as an act of worship. I pray that we sing. I pray that we do pray that we study your word all as an act of worship and devotion to you. Because, Lord, you're worthy of all of our worship at every time and in every place. So this morning, on Christmas morning, in response to the greatest gift, Lord, I pray that we worship you well. Amen. This is a season of songs. This has been a morning of songs. And again, if your favorite one hasn't been hit yet, save it, wait. And when the mic comes around again, just put your hand up a little bit faster next time. Although it's hard to beat out the kids. They got a lot of energy. When we talk about songs, maybe let me ask the kids another question. Why do we sing? What is that? To praise? That's a great answer. Why do we sing? We sing to praise. We talked about this in our high school group. One of the reasons that we sing songs, one of the reasons that people sing and have sung for a long, long time is to praise, to respond to God. That's amazing. Fantastic answer. Why else do we sing? To worship. That corner's on fire this morning. <laughs> we sing to worship. We sing to say true things about God back to Him. We sing to talk about how valuable, how worthy God is. Why else do we sing? To give, to give thanks. We sing to thank Him. We sing to recognize that He has done things for us. We sing because it's memorable. We're taught from a very young age things like the ABCs in song. You all have a song that runs through the back of your mind when you least expect it and least appreciate it because music is memorable. That's why God gave an entire book of songs to his people. Not just beautiful music, but critical theology. We sing because it's beautiful. When God made the world, he made it beautiful. You recognize that Christians aren't just wrapped up in theology of a written word we're wrapped up in theology of the beauty of the world that god has made 
And, and part of God's creative beauty is in music and order and rhythm and harmony and melody and those things reflect the creativity and the beauty of God. We sing because God has built beauty into who we are. We sing what? We sing in fellowship. We sing together. We don't just sing as a group because it covers up the shortcomings of my voice. We sing in fellowship because we have something in common. How precious is it that we come together with people and we sing together? Do you know how bizarre that is to the world around us? But we come together and we sing these true things. And not only that, we sing things that people of like faith have sung for generations and generations, sometimes hundreds of years. Look at some of the dating on the songs in that little songbook in front of you. Those tunes go back an awful long time. These truths aren't changing. Well, what I want to think through today, and don't worry, we'll be a little more brief than usual, is a song. This is Mary's song. When Elizabeth greets Mary, when the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb, when Mary hears someone other than an angel tell her about that baby that she's carrying, Mary, Mary responds in a song. And this song is a worship song. And I want to think through what Mary says because it gives us reason to worship. Because around Christmas time, the reasons for worship are pretty much built in. Uh, we light the candles that spur us on toward worship, toward particular themes. Uh, we come together to celebrate on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve or think through those Christmas narratives and stories. And the reasons to worship are built in. But then we have 360-ish days that aren't surrounding Christmas. And sometimes you and I might find it difficult to find a reason to worship. I wish I could tell you that being a pastor made that different. It doesn't. There are days when I need to be reminded of why I worship. Because this world presses in awfully hard sometimes, doesn't it? And circumstances can really be all-consuming. This little song gives us some universal, constant, always available, always applicable reasons to worship. And this is how Mary introduces it. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. There's some really important introductory information there, and a lot of it has to do with why Mary is singing. She's magnifying the Lord. She's lifting up God, and her spirit rejoices. There's joy in the fact that God is her Savior. And depending on your background, you've heard a lot about Mary. Um, maybe nothing about Mary, but she's kind of a mythical, exalted figure sometimes. Remember that Mary was a human like you and I. And not only was she a human, she was a fallen human in need of a Savior. Mary is not a part of redemption other than that Mary was faithful and obedient, which is remarkable in and of itself. But Mary is singing this not to a God that she sees herself as equal with, but she is singing, she is responding to a God who is worthy of her praise. And this is the first reason. This is why we can always worship. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy 
is his name. Do you know that you and I have a reason to worship every single day because God is holy? All right, kids, another question. What is holy? What did you say? Faithful. God is faithful. That is absolutely true, and that's a part of it. What else is holy? How else would you describe it? Catherine? Kind. God is absolutely kind. Nathan? Exalted. exalted. God is exalted. What do we say back there? Without sin. Without sin. God is absolutely without sin. He is holy without sin. Caleb? Set apart. There, that's the central thing right there. Is God faithful and loving and without sin and perfect? He is. And all of those are a part of that holiness. But when we talk about holiness, the, the main thrust of what it means to be holy is it means to be set apart, to be different, to be other than something. So when we say that God doesn't have any sin, that is true. But it's not just because he's good. It's because he is completely separated and distinct and other than sin. We worship a God who is holy. Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? Who is like God? What's the answer? No one. There's no one like God. See, here's the thing. You and I are maybe kind of default programmed to worship when God does things for us. And we do worship in light of what God has done for us. In fact, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But our worshipful response to God isn't just limited to responding to what He has done. You and I are called and able and really God demands worship simply because of who He is. You and I woke up this morning to a world where the sun still rose in the east and will set in the west. Gravity was fully functional. The oxygen required for breathing was present and plentiful. And none of that happens without the God who created the universe also sustaining it. You and I cannot even imagine or fathom a power like that. I can barely keep my household in order, and as soon as I do, something breaks and the lights turn on and then turn off by themselves. That's the current thing that we're working through. <laughs> but they worked this morning, and I don't know why. And here you have a God so powerful so majestic, so holy, so different than you and I that He can oversee every atom of His creation all at once and ensure not only that it exists and not only that it carries on, but that it continues to fulfill His perfect plan in all things, all the time, in every way. When you are confronted with that kind of God, there is no other response but then to worship. And that is not a Christmas truth. That is an eternal truth. We worship a God who is holy and completely other and different than us. Well, but that brings up an uncomfortable reality because that God who is holy also means that I'm not. But that brings it to the second reason that we worship. Verse 50 
Mary sings that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That great and holy God is a God of mercy. You and I have a reason and a call to worship every day because God is merciful. And we know the story. Adam and Eve in a garden. A single command. And then the call to question God's word. The call to question God's rule. The call to question God's provision, and they fail. And again, it's a nice story if it's only a story. But it's tragic because it's history, and it's not only history, it's our history. You and I, fallen, failed. And because we sin, we're separated from God. That is what sin does. It puts us as enemies against the God who made us. And if you understand the holiness and the power of that God, then being an enemy of His is not a comforting place to be. But you and I have a reason to worship because God is merciful. We remember that on Christmas, that God in His mercy sent the Son to take on flesh, to live the perfect life, to die the death that was ours, to be raised again in power and glory and victory on the third day, and to be called up to the right hand of the Father where He waits until He'll collect His people and rule the nations. Every day that we open our eyes is a reminder of God's mercy. That He is good and gracious to give us another breath in this life. And that He's good and gracious to give us a hope that lasts well beyond this life. It's not that God ignores our failure. It's not that God lowers the standards. It's that He's both just and the justifier, as Romans says. That God deals with sin. But that in His mercy, He said that the penalty for that sin could fall on the only perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And the remarkable thing is that Mary says it's from generation to generation. That mercy of God isn't for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's not for a particular people. It's not for Mary and her family. It's for all generations of God's people. And that's a wonderful reminder because that means that God's mercy is good for today and it will be just as good for tomorrow. That when I walk through my day today and I wind up failing and falling short once again, probably in one of the familiar ways that I always do, that God's mercy is unfailing. Is that enough to worship? Is it enough to bring you to the point of worship to know that that holy God allowed the righteousness of Christ to be placed on you and I so that we could be reconciled to him? The next thing, verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You and I can worship because God lifts up or exalts the humble and humbles the proud. Because we talk about the mercy of God, but what about those of us that are really a mess? (laughs) What about those of us whose past we can barely talk about? What about those of us that are so stubborn we can't seem to get it right? What about those of us who no one else in the world seems to really care for? There's worship in the fact that God lifts the humble. In fact, God only lifts the humble. The proud don't see the need for the Savior. Wasn't that the consistent problem of the Pharisees? As Jesus interacts with them, the consistent conflict was over the fact that they assumed that on their own, somehow, they could be worthy of God's love. That somehow, on their own, they could take the right steps, they could set the right rules, they could make the right boundaries to keep themselves separated from sin, and therefore, God owed them fellowship in His presence. Christ didn't come for the healthy. He came for those who knew they were sick. He came for those who knew that they couldn't meet the standard. And God lifts up the humble. And it's a great reminder to us that our worship is driven by our humility. Because there's sometimes, and I think maybe a lot of times, when in our pride, we don't want God's help. We want to be the ones that have it together enough We want to be the ones that have the lines clean, the boxes drawn, the appearances presented. We want to be the ones who, at the very least, seem socially acceptable. Now, you and I can be drawn to worship in the fact that despite our imperfection, despite our lowliness, our creatureliness, that God who is holy has lifted up the humble. And what does it mean that God lifts up the humble? Well, outside of this song of Mary's, what do we know that God promises His people? Kids, I haven't asked you a question in a while. What are some things that God has promised His people? Do you guys know any of them? He promised them the promised land? Yeah. So when God told Israel that He would give them a land, did He do that? He did, and He brought him exactly where He told them He would. What land has He promised you and I? It's not a land, it's what? Heaven. Jesus talked about a king and a kingdom that was coming. You realize that in our exalted state, which sounds unthinkable to even say, that somehow God has not only invited us into fellowship with Him, but He's promised us a kingdom A place in a kingdom that is unlike any other place that we have ever thought of or imagined. We drive around and it's hard to stay content, especially in our area, looking at some of the homes around here sometimes, isn't it? Can can you even... No, you can't. And I can't. (laughs) Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. We can't even fathom all that God has promised His people. You and I wait for a kingdom that is beyond anything that earthly splendor can even put out. You and I, dust, 
finite, fallen, rebellious, sinful people, God said, not only are you mine, but I'm going to put you in a place that is unimaginably glorious. And it's unimaginably glorious first and foremost because he's there. Do you suppose that's a good enough reason to worship through whatever mundane, daily, boring, heartbreaking, exhausting task you have to go through for the next 360 days until we come back to Christmas? Life's a drag sometimes, isn't it? Not even terribly bad. Sometimes life is just a slog through the same thing over and over and over. It feels like what a beautiful reality to know that God has exalted the humble and promised us a kingdom to be called sons and daughters of the King. I can't even get my mind around it. How can traffic be something that causes me to lose my testimony when heaven is the promise? That perspective will do that to you, though, won't it? (laughs) As we celebrate Christmas, as we think about the humility of Christ demonstrated in coming to earth, The other side of that is his humility brings us to glory. And Mary's not done. She wraps up with this. Verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You and I have reason to worship because God is faithful and always faithful. You mentioned it. He told his people he would bring him into a land, and he did. He told David that a king would come from his line. He told Abraham that there would be blessing through him to all the nations. He told the prophets that a Messiah would come. And at the right time, in the perfect place, he fulfilled those promises. And we celebrate that at Christmas. But the celebration of God's faithfulness is not reserved for Christmas. God has never, ever, not once failed to do exactly what he said he would do. And that matters. Because sometimes you and I, and maybe just I, you wake up facing a particular day, you sit in the middle of a particular painful circumstance, and you wonder, God, where are you in all of this? Did you forget Did I take a wrong turn somewhere so I'm outside of your promise now? What's going on? Think of the context that Mary is singing this song in. A young Jewish girl with a remarkable promise and a miraculous child in her who is still very much living in a society that would find that hard to believe at best. The faithfulness that she's called to will not come easily for her. In fact, you read through the Gospels, and even in some of the things that people say about Jesus, it points back to the fact that his birth is questionable at best. And Mary rejoices because God is faithful. And at some point this year, you and I are going to face a situation, a circumstance, a scenario, or a person, and we are going to wonder, God, where are you in all of this? And yet you and I have the ability and the call and a reason to worship because God is always faithful. 
And he's promised us a kingdom, but we're not there yet. But one of the wonderful things about God's faithfulness is that his promises are not just for a distant, faraway future that comes when we die or when he comes back to get us. That God has made you and I promises every single day. That if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all those things that we need will be added to us. And so we don't need to be anxious for the basic provisions that we need. Those situations that we walk into, where we're tempted, where we're tried, where we're pressed to do something wrong, where we're pushed towards sin, he's promised that he will provide the means of escape for that. In other words, we don't have to fail. That through his spirit, through his word, through his sovereign power, that you and I actually have the ability to live lives that are pleasing to him. He's promised us that he'll, begin, he'll finish the good work that he started in us. That he won't leave us like we are. All those things, all those sins that still cling to me, that he's working to mature me in those things. He's promised in Romans 8 that he's working all things for our good. My problem is I think good means that I feel good, that I look good, that the bank account is good that the lights in the living room work when they're supposed to. All those, those things are what I think are good, and God has a much greater good in mind. And he's faithful to the idea that he is going to use every circumstance, every scenario, every person that I encounter to sharpen me, to refine me, to encourage me, to grow me, to discipline me, to make me more like him. You and I have every reason to worship. And it has everything to do with Christmas, and it has nothing to do with limiting it to Christmas. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. It doesn't seem enough of a response to come together, to sing, to study, and to pray. It feels so small in light of what you've given. Like receiving an amazing gift and being left with just a thank you. And yet, all you've called us to is worship. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in light of that, to love others. To present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to you, and that's our spiritual service of worship. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are engaged constantly in worship. That when we come together on Sundays or Wednesdays or small groups or whenever we meet, that we would think through how our worship is honoring you. That when we love our husbands, our wives, our sons, our daughters, our grandchildren, that we think through how that is an act of worship to you. That when we go to our workplaces or our schools and we engage in pursuits that don't seem holy, Lord, I pray that we would see those as an act of worship to you. Lord, when you break us through the circumstances of life, through loneliness, pain, sickness, and sorrow, through people that oppose us, 
and sometimes are just downright cruel. God, would you bring us to worship even then? Not because we enjoy pain, but because you're good. Because you're still holy. Because you have still exalted the humble. Because you are still faithful. Because you are merciful. Lord, keep those things so close to us, so very in front of us, that our default response to every situation is to worship you. You are worthy of our praise. And Lord, as we celebrate the first Advent, we pray, bring the second. Come, Lord Jesus. Final prayer in Revelation. Come. God, we long to be with you. But every day until then, make us faithful. Amen.